Hi, I'm Kirk Flagg. Welcome to the PEO InSync podcast. In each episode, we will take you behind the scenes to explore the ever-changing PEO world. We will talk with the industry legends, the people whose hard work and creativity shape the PEO world of today. Also, we'll interview current industry leaders, those who are using their own creativity to grow and expand what it means to be a PEO. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Today I have with me John Polson, who is one of, if not the top attorney in the PEO industry. I've known John for many, many years, probably two decades, and I just wanted to have him on today to share some of the wisdom of PEO from a legal standpoint. But first, John, I wanted to ask you, my, my initial question is, where in the world are you today? And uh, the second is, uh, how did you get involved in the PEO industry? Great. Uh, good morning, Kurt. Great to be with you today. Um, I'm sitting in uh, my house in Cota de Casa, California. I, uh, I do normally travel a lot, uh, but for most people, uh, including me, uh, that's changed during COVID, unfortunately. So uh, I am home now and will be for a little bit. In Good. terms of how I got into the industry, um, you know, it's, it started a long time ago when I was a very young lawyer in the early 90s. I uh, was serving the typical role of a young associate in those days, which was carrying someone else's briefcase. Uh, and I, I went to a, a conference for an organization that some people will remember, but doesn't exist today, called KPO, uh, which was affiliated with Napio, but it was its own standalone organization. Pretty robust group of California PEOs or PEOs with business in California. And uh, I carried the briefcase to a KPO conference in Marina Del Rey. And uh, what I, sorry if you can hear my dogs in the background. That's fine. Makes it more human, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, he gave a presentation. He stood up on the platform and about five minutes in, his, his pager went off. This was the day of pagers. And it was his wife saying, come home immediately. And he pointed at me and said, Polson, get up here and finish. So I got up there and I did my best to finish his presentation. And then hung around with the uh, people who were there on a little boat cruise. And at the end of it, two uh, young gentlemen walked up to me and said, we're starting one of these PEO things in our garage and we'd like you to be our lawyer. We know you don't know much about the industry, but we actually like that. We want fresh ideas. And that, that PEO eventually uh, had 500,000 worksite employees uh, before it was purchased. And I like to think that I had a very small part uh, in building into what it was in the end. And ultimately, thanks in large part to Napio, um, you know, I've come to represent many PEOs in the country, most of the PEOs doing business in California. Yes, I'm well aware of that there are a number out there. Um, I was talking with someone the other day, and apparently there are about 950 different PEOs out there at this point in time. That sounds about right. And I, I think um, this is not an exact number, but maybe roughly 300 are members of NAPIO. Uh, so that leaves 600 that are somewhat under the radar in terms of you know what they do and where they do it. Um, and because of that, there might be even more than 950. Who knows? Well, we were uh, talking a little earlier, and what I wanted you to talk about is some of the, the uh, threats on a federal level uh, to the PE or the challenges. We won't call them threats necessarily, but the challenges from a legal standpoint 
that PEOs are facing. And, you know, we can start with uh, COVID, which you had mentioned uh, grounding you. How is COVID affecting uh, PEOs from a national standpoint? Well, I'm sure most PEOs who are planning for 2022 were hoping it wouldn't affect them very much. <laughs> and then uh, a lot has happened just in the last month, uh, maybe even less. Um, the Omicron variant, you know, uh, has proved to be very contagious um, and is uh, reportedly affecting many workplaces. Many employers are going back to full remote in response to it. Um, and then it, and on the federal level, um, not long ago, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal released all the stays. They were on the OSHA emergency temporary standard. And now employers will have to comply with that standard in early January. Um, for those who don't know, although most probably do, that standard requires employers with 100 or more employees to um, either require vaccinations of workers or test them every seven days. And uh, there are many iterations and issues related to that that I won't go into, but the, the PEO issue is, what is the role of the PEO? Um, is it an advisor on this issue? Is it providing policies? Um, is it uh, doing nothing and saying it's a client responsibility? Um, is it going to be a police person um, to make sure clients actually comply or leave it to them? And there are many pros and cons to all those approaches. Okay. Anything else going on in the COVID area that PEOs need to be aware of? Well, there, there are many things going on um, in, in terms of threats and risks and that kind of thing for 2022. There is a, a concerning case in California involving C's Candy, many people's favorite uh, chocolate company, um, where a, a woman was working at C's Candy and caught COVID at work. And it's fairly certain she did. She was working with other people who were sick and then uh, went home and her husband contracted it from her, uh, allegedly, and, and unfortunately passed away. And now she's suing C's Candy, claiming they should be liable um, in, in a negligence theory for her husband's death. Um, many times employees try to claim that you know family members somehow suffered emotional distress or something like that. And the, and the courts dismiss it routinely because the exclusive remedy that goes with workers' compensation should block all of that. It, it should right. just limit the remedy to the employee and, and, not, and not their family, and it should just be in workers' comp. But the trial court in that case, and just this uh, recently, the Court of Appeal ruled that the employee can sue for the death of her husband and that the exclusive remedy doesn't apply using a very narrow exception that originally was designed just for asbestos uh, situations where family members contracted an illness because the employee had asbestos exposure. Uh, we don't believe that's a right decision. Uh, we're hopeful that the California Supreme Court will review it and reverse it, but who knows? Um, and in the meantime, one would assume that PEO workers' comp premiums will take a significant hit because of this particularly if the theory spreads throughout the right. country. And we, had, we saw that happen a lot. We saw other states adopting California's COVID-related rules, decisions, and so forth not long after. So this could easily spread to other places like New York, New Jersey, Washington, Oregon, uh, those states that, that tend to follow that pattern. Is there anything in that situation that a PEO or uh could advise its clients 
that they should or shouldn't do to avoid that sort of lawsuit? I mean, was there something especially egregious that in hindsight C's might have done? Or, and if you don't care to comment on that, that's fine as well. No, I'd love to comment on that. Um, well, you know, in the C situation, all we can do is, is look at the allegations. We don't know what's true and what's not true. Um, right. But, you know, the allegations are that the company knew people were sick. Uh, they didn't know if they had COVID or not, perhaps, but they were sick at work, as opposed to what you're supposed to do, which is if someone's coughing and sneezing, you tell them to go home uh, and you might even require a test before they come back. Um, so in terms of PEOs and their clients, um, the, the advice is make sure your clients do their best to comply uh, with all the rules that are designed to stop something like that from happening. The, the challenge is, is, is if the PEO is too hands-on in that process and appears to be actually running the safety practices of their client, as opposed to just serving as a trusted advisor, that's the kind of thing that OSHA might look at and say, well, you have so much control, we will cite you for your client's safety violations. Or in a wage and hour case, somebody might say, that's evidence that you're exerting so much control that you're a joint employer for overtime violations and things like that. So right. it's this historically fine line PEOs have to walk, but the liability for the client getting this wrong and that perhaps trickling up to the PEO is dramatic. Um, when employees die in the workplace and someone tries to allege tort liability, which we've seen happen in many places, if that were to trickle up to the PEO, that would be very damaging. One other, how, how does EPLI fit into this uh, sort of lawsuit? Uh, would would uh, PEOs be protected? Because most of them have the EPLI coverage or what do you see trends there? Well, today we see most COVID claims being covered by EPLI. And by a COVID claim, I mean something like an employment discrimination case where COVID is mentioned. And we're seeing a lot of those. The most popular one probably is the company did not let someone work remotely. And they claimed that that was necessary as a reasonable accommodation for a disability like uh, asthma. You know, they're particularly vulnerable to COVID because they have uh, uh, asthma, so they want to work at home and the company says no. Um, those claims today are covered. However, uh, it, it appears there may be a trend developing uh, by carriers to limit that liability. Um, I, I've seen at least one policy with an endorsement excluding claims that mention COVID. Um, if that happens uh, on a broader scale, then PEOs will be self-insuring uh, for these types of claims like that discrimination claim I mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Anything else going on in the federal level before we get to the great state of California? I want to make sure that we have some of the, the you know, I'm sure Department of Labor uh, has some things planned for the, the PEO industry and definition of employer. Yeah, the joint employer rules will, ch will change dramatically. It's just a matter of um, the agencies having enough time to get to them with all the COVID stuff they're dealing with. They're overwhelmed. They, they've said it's coming. So the, the prior administration uh, through uh, DOL, NLRB, um, issued joint employer rules that were very favorable to PEOs. Um, my law firm and, and NAPIO both had input into some of those rules and some of our language ended up in the rules, like saying things like, um, 
Just because we have employment records, that fact alone can't make us a joint employer. Um, just because in some states, we have to reserve a right of direction and control in the contract, um, let's say Florida, that doesn't make us a joint employer. We were able to, able to work those specific co comments into those rules. And that, and that was great. Um, that meant that when a PEO was named in some big collective action, FLSA collective action, we had a, a rule to refer to uh, to get us out of it. Much like the FMLA regulations that say in the PEO setting, you know, there are limitations that uh, help the PEO. Um, then um, when Biden um, uh, came into office and had time to get to these things, um, his agency started, un started unwinding those rules. Um, and they have done so effectively. Uh, and, and now new rules will be coming. So this is kind of a weird pause period where, in theory, we're functioning under the pre-Trump rules. Um, right. and, and this is somewhat typical. Uh, the joint employer issue is a bit of a pendulum exercise. When the NLRB, DOL um, uh, have a more pro-employee political party uh, in office, they tend to change the rules to be you know, more liability generating. And when the other party's in office, it goes the other way. It's been like that for decades. Um, so what do we expect? Uh, we expect a NLRB and FLSA standard that focuses on reserving rights of control. Uh, and it will say things like, you do not have to show an actual exercise of control, just a reservation of rights uh, to prove joint employer status. And again, in states like Florida and others that have that reservation language required in contracts, that's problematic. Um, yes, I was just thinking exactly that, that, you know, Florida requires that you have the, um, retain the control or the right to hire and fire. Well, that's right. Um, each, each state kind of has its own flavor to it, although a lot of them have language based on, you know, model language that was created years ago on that topic. Um, the biggest concern is, is the wage hour. I, NLRB is always a concern because PEOs correctly do, do not want to be involved in union bargaining with their unionized clients or a campaign to unionize a client. Um, right. But th that is a small percentage of businesses that PEOs work with. Um, unions have penetrated the white collar industries, gray collar, fairly well. So it's not that it's all blue collar, but a lot of, a lot of it is blue collar. Uh, and many PEOs don't take that kind of client. Um, also, many, many PEOs take the position that they're not equipped uh, to work with a unionized client, and they have some good arguments for that. So that, that one, you know, maybe every once in a while, the PEO will see their, themselves being named in a petition for an election or something like that. Under the old standard, new standard, unclear standard, we've usually been very successful in protecting the PEO. There's a, a case called the Cabana Coaches case, which is an NLRB case that my colleague Mike Miller handled and successfully demonstrated the PEO was not a joint employer. And that goes back years, and we refer to that frequently. The bigger problem is wage hour, given that Wage and hour litigation has become a cottage industry for plaintiffs, lawyers, arbitrators, and mediators. There's a giant machine, almost like an industry, spitting out these wage and hour claims across the country, particularly in the more pro-employee states. 
And if, if the PEO becomes a joint employer in those cases and is jointly liable for its clients not paying overtime, minimum wage, and so forth, that's that's very damaging. So that's the one to really watch. Uh, let's shift gears to the great state of California. There's always something going on here. What's what's happening in uh, 2022? Well, litigation is going to be the headline story in 2022 in California. Um, we, we have enough bad laws on the books already. Uh, uh, there's only so much more the legislature can do for us here in terms of adding laws. But the headlines will be the seized candy issue, which we talked about earlier. That's right now a California issue. Um, the Private Attorney General Act, uh, which we call PAGA, um, which is a wage and hour claim that, that is a easier claim to make um, to cover all employees and former employees without certifying a class action. It has a shorter statute of limitations, but these things are really easy for plaintiff's lawyers to set up. And our PEO clients are getting named in these things constantly. It's just a river of these things. And uh, there is an effort underway to try to limit the scope of PAGA. So we may see legislation introduced in that regard. But I mean, we, we, we are in a state that is controlled by labor unions um, and other pro-employee groups. So it's very difficult to get that kind of legislation passed. But I think even uh, unions and pro-employee groups may realize that this could eventually go to the point where employers are going to go out of business. So we're, we're hoping to see something there. Regardless, uh, PEOs must have an annual review of their California wage payment practices. The rules here just change constantly. Um, and what, what people need to realize if they're not used to California is that we have bad laws and that's a problem, but at least, at least you know about them. They can be on your list of things to fix. The bigger problem is the courts here on a routine basis interpret a law to mean something no one ever thought it would mean, and then retroactively uh, make it apply. And that, that happened many times in 2021, perhaps the most recent thing that happened being a change in the way employers calculate meal period premiums. The concept that in general is just uh, foreign, uh, unless you're in California where we have these meal break rules where employees have to get meal breaks on a certain schedule. And if they don't get them, there's a one hour premium payment that's owed for each of those violations. And even a short lunch, a 29 minute lunch break is a violation of the rule. It's supposed to be 30 and nothing less than 30. And, you know, PEOs who process those premiums for clients generally just take the hourly rate and apply it and pay an hour. No big deal. And then a court just woke up one day and said, Hey, um, uh, if there were bonuses paid for that period or other flat rate payments not included in the hourly rate, you've got to include that in the, the rate that you use for the meal period premium. Big wake up call. Systems had to be reprogrammed immediately because it was retroactive. And now the lawsuits are coming. I'm very familiar with the PAGA. Your colleague, Boris, gave me quite an education there for a while. And, and I immediately understood how what a threat they were, not only to, to PEOs, but to um, business in general. It, it was just amazing that, uh, you know, a fairly small entity, you know, less than 100 employees would all of a sudden have multi-million dollar 
potential liability and settling for hundreds of thousands of dollars as a general rule. So yes, PAGA, I think alone is, is worth uh, contacting your firm to make sure people are uh, in compliance. Going forward in the future, and, and, and we talked about this briefly, you know, there's, there's a book out there, The Future is Faster Than You Think. I don't know if you've read it, but it talks about different technologies kind of changing the way the world works. In the next 10 years, supposedly, this is going to dramatically affect how work is done. And we touched on crypto briefly uh, when we chatted last. How is crypto affecting the PEO industry or what do PEOs need to know about crypto and technology, blockchain, and, and the like? Yeah, crypto has kind of snuck up on a lot of people. I mean, obviously, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and companies like that are in the news constantly um, for their impact on investment markets. Um, but most people don't think of them as an employment issue. Uh, and it really is. Um, one, one just fascinating tidbit uh, is that a, a large percentage of, of workers who have left the workforce, something like 10 or 11% of them report that they stopped working because of so-called passive cryptocurrency investment. In other words, they got rich off crypto. Uh, and so they're no longer working. So, and, and I've seen at least one resignation in my firm uh, where the person said, I just don't need to work the rest of my life because I have so much money from my cryptocurrency investments I made years ago when it was cheap. Uh, fascinating. Uh, but you know, more practical than, than that issue is, um, first of all, the impact on the payment of wages um, and 401k investments. Um, there are client companies of PEOs that are asking the PEOs to pay their people in cryptocurrency. Um, and payment of wages in cryptocurrency presents a lot of legal issues, uh, not the least of which is, is the fact that the day you decide to pay it, it will be worth something different than it is the day the employee receives it. Um, unless you use one of the technologies that you know, gives it a fixed value and there are things like that out there. So that's an issue. Um, there are, the states are moving uh, either towards restricting it or finding ways to facilitate. So it's going to become one of those state level uh, compliance issues. Then our benefits team is getting calls about whether 401k investment options should include a crypto fund um, or a crypto company. Um, and the, the, the wild fluctuations in those markets makes people nervous, but demand could eventually overtake uh, the concerns. Um, so that's something to keep your eye on. And I, I think most people's um, risk indicators go up as soon as they hear the word crypto regarding anything. So they probably know to be leery, but you need to be leery and get uh, counsel involved. We have a cryptocurrency task force inside the firm that focuses on these issues and answer questions about that. And then lastly, and I think this is the most fascinating to me personally, is how blockchain technology will impact business transactions and employment uh, transaction. Um, and, you know, blockchain, you know, it takes an, a one hour YouTube video to explain what that is uh, for someone who's not familiar with it. But, you know, think of it as uh, a way to validate contracts in, in a way that's impervious uh, to challenge for the most part and a way to make things happen automatically uh, inside of a contract. You might've heard of the term smart contract. Smart contracts definitely are, are generally, I should say, involve blockchain. So think of this, uh, 
client service agreement signatures that now we all do by DocuSign and things like that might be validated through blockchain technology in, in, instead. And when someone says that DocuSign is forged, um, that, that kind of thing would not exist with blockchain. Uh, it would be much harder uh, to break it. And then the, the smart contract aspect of it can cause things to self-execute, um, like automatically sending a one-year renewal document for execution um, to every client on, on a schedule, as opposed to what happens now, where a salesperson just sheepishly calls up a client and says, can I get a new contract? Uh, so it, it, might, it might be a more painless uh, way to do that. And it can self-execute all sorts of other things, um, in increases in rates, um, uh, accepting um, policies that should be reviewed every year, like maybe it's a data privacy policy, you want them to review and execute every year. It's a new way uh, of doing those things. Um, and, and then um, some people think it will you won't eventually government or govern all benefit uh, documents like the, the SPDs, you know, they're distributed, might, that might be done by blockchain um, technology. And then next level for us, which we're excited about, is there may be a way to have arbitration agreements executed. You know, today, when the typical online onboarding system asks the employee to check the box on arbitration, that almost always is challenged by plaintiff's lawyers who are looking for a reason to challenge an agreement like that. And we have to get a declaration from the IT department of the PEO. The IT department might get their deposition taken, all in an effort to prove this person who clearly agreed to arbitration did not. Um, blockchain would eliminate that. And we're seeing movement in the employer community in general to find ways to use blockchain to authenticate important agreements like that. Interesting. That's very interesting. Well, John, I promise not to go too long today, but one of the things that I wanted to say, I know Fisher and Phillips in the past has had um, various seminars open to people that they could sign up for, probably Zoom conferences now. Uh, that they can get updates on the New Year's law. How would how would someone find the next seminar that you may have uh, on updates? Would that be on your webpage, or how would they get a, a hold of Fisher and Phillips? Well, um, first of all, anyone is free to reach out to me personally uh, to talk about what they're looking for. Um, you can call me or uh, email me at jpolson at fisherphillips.com. Um, and then the website is a good resource. You can search for events on the website and we'll list all of our upcoming events. I, I would say um, also to look for some things that are archived um, because we just finished our California legal update that we do every year. Uh, those happened in December. So you should be able to find that archived on the website and see that. Um, in terms of upcoming conferences to keep an eye out for, we've got uh, major webinars going on regarding the ETS. I think we have 5,000 people registered or had 5,000 people registered for the last one that was done. Prior one, I think we had 8,000 people registered. And the, the people who are attending that are hearing about our, our ETS package, where we uh, provide standard policies, training documents, um, acknowledgements that have to be signed, and an outline of how to comply with the ETS. Now that it's back large and in charge uh, in terms of uh, vaccine and, and testing mandates. One specific event for in-house lawyers um, is, uh, that's the last one I'll mention. Uh, we call it the, the ICC conference, Inside Council conference. 
That habits happens, I believe, the first week of March in California this year. We bounce back and forth between coasts uh, every year with that. And that's focused on um, inside lawyers, general counsel, uh, and so forth. And I'm uh, hoping to have a, a PEO breakout uh, at the beginning of that, where we focus just on PEO-related issues. So you can find information on that on our homepage, ICC conference in March in uh, Newport Beach. Thank you so much for being our guest today. And um, I'll send you a copy and you can, um, you can hear how good you sound uh, in a podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure, Kirk. I really appreciate the, the invitation and I can't wait to go back and find out all the times my dogs may have interrupted the uh, podcast. <laughs> Thank you, John.